invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. As usual, it's good to see everyone out this evening, just like this morning, just be able to sing praises to God, to see some back that weren't able to be with us this morning, as was mentioned in the prayer. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. When, um, you, when you talk about roles in the church and when you talk about f- functions and responsibilities, and we've kind of been talking a lot about that recently, especially as we've been going through a series on the elders, we're not going to be talking about that tonight, but we are going to focus in on the church once more, and, and especially when you think about our, the importance of our involvement and our activity in the church. Most Christians would say that our role and involvement is important when it comes to that of the church, and, and especially their view of that in the church. No, I don't think many people, if any, would ever say that this was a trivial thing or it was unimportant, our responsibilities towards the church. Now, while that we do have roles that we are to fill and we do have duties that we are supposed to perform, that we are supposed to fulfill, are there ways that we can fail the church? And I think that there are a few ways that we can do that. And when you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter of 1 Corinthians, as Paul writes to this church in Corinth, there were so many problems that they had. And so you could probably point out a couple different things, a couple different applications that we could make of how you can fail a church. But I think especially, uh, that got loud all of a sudden. If I need to move the microphone, Cody, just let me know. Um, <clears throat> but, w- but especially uh, when you think about certain issues, certain mistakes that they made, but especially things that cause division, things that really hurt the church. I think when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you find one of the main ways, perhaps one of the biggest ways that we can fail the church and hurt the church. And so I just want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 very quickly. And, and it's not a long chapter, so it won't take that long. It's just 13 verses. But look at the problem that Paul is talking about specifically in this chapter. And, and I will just say, again, we're only going to focus on this. We can't focus on everything in 1 Corinthians. And, and also, we could go deeper than we are going to go tonight of, of chapter 5. But I just want to hit the basic things, the most foundational points we have to make from this chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. 
I did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world or with the covetous or swindlers or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now, I know that this is a passage that you all have read before and hopefully we're pretty familiar with. But I want to start by talking about what the main failure was within this church and, and how we want to make sure we're not mimicking that failure, that we are not imitating this church, at least in this degree. And, and I will just say, it's not to say that there's nothing good about the Corinthians, that there's no redeeming factor about the church in Corinth, but they had a lot of problems. And this, I, perhaps maybe one of the biggest. And so what was that failure? First of all, there was a Christian who was blatantly sinning, and, and a very public sin, and it was not a sin that was being repented of. It was not a sin that, was, that there was any remorse shown by the individual, and as we're going to talk about in just a moment, by the church there. And, and I think this passage is one of the most purposefully misinterpreted passages throughout the Bible. Because what happens is people come to this kind of passage, they come to this account, they look at this character, and they try to make excuses almost for this person, or they try to make extreme cases to basically make sure that you don't come to the conclusion that God wants us to. And, and I want, So that's why I want to make just the most basic points that we see here, because it wasn't that someone had just merely made a mistake. This was a mistake, but it wasn't just that, oh, I shouldn't have done that, I need to do better. This is someone who is living in unrepentant sin, someone who is walking in sin, walking in darkness, not walking in light. They have disfellowshipped, if I can use that word, uh, I don't know if that's actually a word, but they have broken their fellowship with Jesus. They are no longer walking in the light. That, that's, that's what Paul is talking about here. And so because they have broken their fellowship with Jesus, there needs to be a very, very specific response from the local church. But as we see, the, the, the church in Corinth responded completely unscripturally. As I said, there's a very specific way that they were supposed to respond. In verse 2, he says, You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. There's a lot to unpack there. But what does he first say? Not, he doesn't start with what they should have done. He gets there, but he starts with what they were doing. And what they were doing was being arrogant. Now, how are they being arrogant? I think ultimately by just tolerating the sin. They were prideful, I don't think in the sexual immorality necessarily. But what I think they were prideful in is their tolerance of it. They were prideful of their tolerance of the sin. And you know, we can kind of speculate on what the, the, the reasons behind this was. We don't know exactly why they were tolerating this. Maybe their pride was linked to the man because he was maybe a wealthy or a prominent man of the community, and so they didn't really want to reprimand him. Or maybe it was a man that they were scared to confront. Any of those could be, could be possible. And, I, and you know, I, I, I'm not willing to say that it was one or the other, but what I think we should find here, what I think we should uh, make the point here is that no matter what it was, they shouldn't have tolerated it. It could have been maybe linked to their appearance. Maybe they were tolerating the sin because they want to be viewed as an accepting church. Look at, the, look at what we have done. Look at who we have brought in. And you know, I think that it would be a pretty awesome thing to have someone like Saul of Tarsus be converted, become a Christian, and to be able to show people, look at this man who's become a Christian. 
But Saul of Tarsus was truly converted. Here is a man that was supposed to be acting like Christ, and he simply was not. And so maybe they just wanted to say, look how accepting we are. And look what kind of man he is, and, and now he's a Christian. But he's not acting like one. They were tolerating sin. Maybe they were just afraid that they were going to be viewed as just being too dogmatic. They didn't want people to look at them and say, these people are so strict, they are so judgmental. And so maybe they just didn't want to uh, deal with the problem because of that. Again, it could be any one of these, regardless of what their purpose or their reasoning was for tolerating the sin. Their pride is connected specifically to the tolerance. And so here's one of the first things that we need to be careful of, that when there is sin, that when there is not just a misstep, but impenitence in a Christian's life, we need to make sure that we don't follow suit tolerating the sin, but we need to address it. Well, the, the second way that I think the church responded unscripturally is, and this is kind of a given, they, dis, they just didn't do what God had commanded them to do. They didn't do as God instructed. It's not like God is unclear here. It's not like it, it, God is vague about this. Again, I think this is one of the most misinterpreted passages, misinterpreted uh, principles throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament. When you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Titus chapter 3 and verses 9 and 10, where it talks about how to treat men that are false teachers, how to treat Christians that are unrepentant. God has given us numerous instructions. And yet people sometimes look at such a clear passage and say, ah, it's, it's still kind of vague here. I don't think it is. God gave us very clear instructions. And what does Paul say that they needed to do? Instead of being arrogant, they should have mourned and withdrew. They should have mourned the sin and they should have disassociated from it. Because we don't want people to think that we have fellowship with the deeds of darkness. And I would just add that because they, did, because they responded unscripturally, I, I, I think ultimately what we can say is they responded sinfully. They did not do what God had commanded them to do. For whatever reason, they weren't willing. And that is sin. Now, today, instead of doing what God says, I think many churches will, will show this same or, or go after this same pattern, maybe by knowing about the sin, just like the church at Corinth. And instead of addressing it, instead of doing as God has commanded them to do, they know about the sin, but they start gossiping about the person. Did you hear about so-and-so? Did you hear that he's doing this? Did you hear that she's doing this? Did you hear that? This is disgusting. Can you believe that? And they talked to all kinds of people except the brother that needs rebuked. And, and maybe even publicly so. But he's the one that needs to hear that more than anyone. And so they follow after the church of Corinth. Maybe it's just a, a church will, like Corinth, know about the sin, but they just don't go to the brother at all. Because for some reason they don't want to confront him. For some reason they don't want to talk about the issue. Maybe they're just uncomfortable and they decide they're not going to go to him. They're not going to do anything. They're just going to sit there. I can't tell you how many times I have um, been a part of a situation where there's talk about one or many people that need to be rebuked. That need to hear words like this. That, that you're not walking rightly. That you have gone astray from the path that Jesus would have us to walk. And instead of every single member in unison going to that person's house, knocking on the door, calling them, sending them across, doing something. How many times I've seen just one or two people of the congregation actually reach out? That's a, that's a shame. That is shameful when something like that happens. It should be that it is a unified effort that every single person, every single member, every single role in the church is going and looking out for that person. Not just one or two people. Everyone has a responsibility in this, and we'll talk about that more in just a little bit. But this is, I think, the, essentially the failure. 
just very basic. This is the failure, that there was a brother that was sinning, and they did not respond scripturally. They responded, but not scripturally. They responded sinfully because they tolerated the sin, and they did not remove it from their midst. Rather, they became arrogant and started boasting about it. And so for the next few minutes, I just want to talk about what that responsibility needs to look like, both collectively and individually. And we just want to start with what that collective responsibility is. And what I mean by that is what the responsibility is of this local church. When you look at Corinth, what were they supposed to do? Paul makes it very clear. They were to discipline and not associate with them. They were to withdraw. We use this word a lot, and this is what we mean when we say withdraw. It means to not associate. It means just, just look at some of the verbiage that, or some of the language that Paul uses. In verses 2 and 13, he uses the word remove from your midst. In verse 5, he says deliver unto Satan for the, for the destruction. I mean, you'd look at that, and some people look at that, and they say, how could Paul say something like that? But that's the language that's used. In verse 11, it says, don't associate. In verse 13, again, it says, to judge. Again, I think many people would look at the words that Paul uses and say, how, how could he say something like this? In fact, you hear several people object to this kind of a passage frequently by saying something along the effect of, isn't this a little over the top? Don't you think that maybe this is kind of silly? Or maybe someone would hear about a, a local church doing what they're supposed to be doing, just obeying God's commandments, and they say something like, don't you think that it's more hurtful than not when you're doing something like this? Well, there are several things that I would want to say to that person. But one of the main things is, do I, do I really feel comfortable when I begin to suggest that God's instruction is over the top, that God is just being dramatic? What, what I would say is, maybe we're not taking something seriously enough. Maybe we don't view it as dramatically as we should. When God is saying, this is a serious problem, and for some reason you're not seeing it. We need to make sure that we see the failure here and that we understand what their responsibility was. They weren't, not, they weren't okay just doing nothing. They needed to act. They needed to try and bring that brother back. They needed to just simply obey what God had given them to do. And the reality is, People can come and, and, and you know, bring their hypotheticals. They can bring their objections all they want. But the reality is, when you have a situation like this, this brother had left the domain of Christ. He was no longer walking in fellowship with him. He's no longer walking in the light. And when we obey this kind of commandment, this is not us just being mean. This is not us being judgmental. This is just actualizing or realizing in our lives what the reality already is what that brother has already done. He has broken fellowship. And what we're doing is just showing what has happened in our own lives, in our own uh, association and relationship with him. And I would just say again, in verse 5, when he says, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Once more, I, I really struggle when people say, don't you think this is going to do more harm than good? Don't you think that this is just a... Don't you think, don't you think, don't you think. You know, sometimes I think... <laughs> I think. But sometimes the best thing for us to do is say what my very first boss did when I was bailing hay. When something would happen and he would ask me and my brother what, what was going on, I said, well, I thought this. And he said, oh, let me stop you right there. You thought that was the mistake. <laughs> and I think that's the way it is with most people. And again, I know I just said I think. I just don't want to be too presumptuous there. I truly believe that most of the time, People are using their hypotheticals. People are using purely 
their own wisdom, leaning on their own wisdom, to try and overwrite what God has already said. I think that this is best. What God has said in verse 5 is this is what is best. You want to do the most beneficial thing for this brother or sister that's fallen away? This is it. And, and people don't want to hear that. And I, I, I don't know what exactly the, the, the main temptation may be in that. Maybe it's just the fact that it's a family member. Maybe it's just the fact that they're not willing to let this relationship go. But regardless, this is what God says is the very best thing for them. And so who are we to even suggest, no, this isn't it. There's a better way. There is no better way but God's way. And, and you know, I, frankly, I like the adage, God said it, that settles it. And so if this is what God's command is, I'm going to follow it to the letter. This is what he says that brother needs most, and so I'm going to do it. Well, so, so their, their responsibility was first to, to discipline, to not associate, not have fellowship with that kind of deed of darkness. But I would just go further and say that this effort was not just supposed to be a few people in the church. This was supposed to be the whole church. In verse 4, Paul says, In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, he says, I decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What, what do you think that means when you are assembled? It's talking about the assembly at Corinth. It's talking about the local church there. This is not just five or ten people. This is a whole unified effort of everyone. We don't get to have, you know, one or two people say, I don't really like this, as long as we're following Scripture, as long as this isn't a diatrophies situation. But if this is what, if this is a 1 Corinthians chapter 5 situation, people don't get to say, I'm not going along with this. I'm not making the same decision. No, we're supposed to have each other's backs. We're supposed to get behind this kind of choice. Because, again, it's needed. In verse 13, once more, he says, but those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked, the wicked man from among yourselves. And I wish that we had time to go back to some of the language that's being hearkened into the law of Moses. But over and over again, if you have a, uh, references in your Bible, you're going to see over and over again, especially in Deuteronomy, it's repeated. And it's saved for the kind of people that start straying from God, that begin to let idolatry into their lives. And, and frankly, when you go through some of those passages, it's amazing to see who the, who the main witnesses are supposed to be against those people in Israel. It's supposed to be even their family members that are the first to cast the stone, are the first to testify against them that they're going astray. And so he says, with that context, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. When you look at the context of these kinds of passages, it really shows you the level of deep responsibility that is there in the commandment. And, and I'll tell you, frankly, people, most of the time when we talk about a passage like this, say, but, but if it's family, how, how, can we, how, could we go, how could we go this far? They went very far in the Old Testament law. Sometimes we say, I'm glad I don't live under the old law. Maybe we're not glad enough because we would have to be the ones to cast the first stone whenever it was family, if it was family that walked away. And so... This is supposed to be a unified effort. It's supposed to be something that the entire congregation gets behind. But question, when, when, when you look at these instructions, and we went through all the verses where Paul uses different words, different language, does it remotely suggest that we don't have to obey this? No, it's more so along the lines of it's emphasizing you are to do this. You remove it from your bits. You make sure that the leaven is completely cut out. You make sure that you aren't corroded, corrupted by that. And I think when we look at the, the 
impactful language behind these commandments. I really think it helps us when it comes to certain hypotheticals that people will bring. Don't bring your hypotheticals. God is very clear. He's not vague or ambiguous. And so we need to be clear. We need to be firm where the Bible is clear, where God is very clear. And I know that this is hard to hear sometimes, but it's just the truth. In verse 7, in verse 7 he says, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. And he uses again moral testament language. But what I think he's really trying, I think this is more of a metaphor. And what Paul is trying to say is when a church tolerates sin, what happens is its moral standard, its purity is lowered, it's degraded, it's corroded. Just like leaven does to the bread. All it takes is a little bit. All it takes is a little bit. And it will mess with the entire thing. And it doesn't take long. And so that's why he is so very firm and resolved to say, get it out. Again, I don't think people, when, when they look at a passage like this, give it the full credit that it deserves. And so it needs to be a unified effort, this kind of discipline. And, and finally, with this point, I, I just need to stress again, this command is for unrepentant sin. He, he, he's not saying that it's just someone that's made a mistake and then they turn back and they, and they pretty quickly made things right. He's talking about the person that's just walking in rebellion. And it is not just designated or limited to sexual immorality. That's another objection that people will try to make when they see this kind of passage. They say, oh, well, really, church discipline is only for the person, only for the Christian that is sexually immoral. But that's not true. We could go to several other passages. You look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verses 6 through 14, and what he says is not just a sexual immoral, but the person who's not willing to work, the person who's not following the example of the apostles, the, per the person who's not looking like a Christian. We even talked about that a little bit last week. As we talked about the man that's not willing to provide for his family, he is worse than an unbeliever. He's denied the faith. You know, I remember hearing a story about a church that confronted a man, a member at that congregation, and they disciplined him. They withdrew from him because he wasn't contributing. I tell you, people would hear that kind of example and say, wow, that really is over the top. Aren't we commanded to contribute every first day of the week? to give back a portion of what God has so graciously blessed us with? I look at that kind of situation, I think, here's a congregation that takes this commandment seriously. There's another church that I've heard about that public, publicly rebuked a member for moving and not placing membership anywhere. Let me ask, is that wrong? No, what are they doing? They're making sure that that person that was a part of their number, they're making sure that their brother, their sister in Christ is doing what they need to be doing because they care about that brother or sister. And they want them to be right with the Lord. They want him to have fellowship with the Lord. And so, I know that in our culture, discipline has such a bad connotation. It's such a bad context. But I, it shouldn't. We are to discipline. We are to withdraw. We are to not associate with anyone who walks in sin. And it's not just because we hate the person. It's because we want what's best for them. And so this is a unified effort, and it's a unified effort against unrepentant sin so that they will turn back. Now, I just want to end with indi the individual responsibility that we should have. Because sometimes what people will say is, well, this is really just designated for the local church. It, in individual relationships, it doesn't go that far. What's more, I don't think that's so. We should be united with the congregation, with the local church in matters of discipline, regardless of the situation. In Ephesians chapter 4, 
I know a very familiar passage, but in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, Paul says that we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let me just ask, are we being diligent to preserve the bond of unity in peace? Are we united if something happens like this, something unfortunate happens like this where discipline has to happen, and we say, you know what, they are being so judgmental. I can't believe that they're putting you through this. I can't believe that they're treating you like this. You know what you're doing? You are reinforcing that person's decision to walk away from the Lord. And I'll tell you, I, I've known Christians that have done that with, with my own family members. And I look at that person, and you know how I look at them? Traitor. Traitor against the king, and traitor against your brethren. Because what God said is best for them, you're taking all of that force away for your comfort, so that you can look like their buddy. Traitor. And we need to view it the same way. I don't get to just change what God has commanded. And I don't get to try and just to make myself look more accepting, just for my own pride to try and tolerate something. I don't get to go behind the, 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 the local church's back and say, you know what, it's just wrong what they've done. Again, I'm not talking about a diatrophy situation, but when it's a 1 Corinthians chapter 5 situation and someone is walking in unrepentant sin, that is traitorous. To go behind the back and not support that decision and say, they are right in what they did. Because we are not to have fellowship with the deeds of darkness. And so doing that reinforces the sinning brother to continue on because what he's going to think is these people, they can't even agree with each other. We need to show that we are striving for unity. And that means even in the difficult situations where discipline has to happen. Well, not only that, but there is personal, personal application. This is supposed to go down to an individual level. We have a responsibility not to associate with people when they have walked away from God. In 2 John, 2 John uh, in verse 9, <laughs> chapter, 2 John in verse 9, it says, Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he is both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. So what is John saying? I think certainly this goes into the realm of, of the local church, the congregation. But it goes even deeper than that. It goes into our personal lives. He says you don't even give this person a greeting. Why? Because they're teaching false doctrine. They are teaching a false gospel. And they're living in that way. And, and you could turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to look there in just a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Because what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5 is that even he as an individual, on an individual level, has already decided this man needs to be disciplined. This man needs to be removed from among your midst. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 20, similar language is, is given. <clears throat> it says, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Why does he say that you need to rebuke in the presence of all so that everyone else knows that we're not going to tolerate this? No matter who you are. And in fact, right before you get there, I think it's kind of talking about in, in the same context of an elder, of someone who, ha, who lives in that way. If someone continues to walk in sin, you make sure that everyone sees, you make sure that everyone knows that you're not going to show partiality regardless of who it is. Family, someone who does hold a higher role in the church. Why? Because this is too important. I've talked to people and, and close relationships where people have said, well, there's no 
there was no local church, there was no congregation that ever withdrew from these people. They never disciplined them, so really we can just continue on acting like everything's okay. And you have, the person that they're talking about has, is wrecking their lives currently with alcohol, is wrecking their lives currently with atheism and agnosticism, and they go further and further out into the deep end. And they say, but, the, but there's no local church that's ever disciplined them. So that means I don't have any responsibility. Really? How, do we ever accept that kind of reasoning with any other portion of Scripture? Absolutely not. Why? Because it's foolish. It's folly. And we care too much about God's Word to treat it so frivolously. We don't get to excuse ourselves from the responsibility, even if there was no local church that ever did theirs. We have a responsibility, and we need to make sure that we love our brother or our sister enough to go forward with this. So when we fail to act on these things, we are, as you see on the screen, we're tolerating sin. And when we tolerate sin for pride, for whatever reason, whatever application you want to make there as we, that we started with, whatever reason we tolerate sin, what we are doing is holding that brother or sister's hand to hell. We are saying, you're okay. We're okay with this, that you're living an open rebellion. You don't have to worry about this. You don't have to worry about the judgment that's coming. That's ultimately what we're saying when we tolerate sin. That's what Corinth was saying as they were tolerating sin. That they didn't care enough about the brother to rebuke him. They didn't care enough about the brother that he goes to heaven. Because, hey, look at what we can boast about now. We need to be careful that we're not tolerating sin and showing that we don't care enough about that brother or sister. And, and, and ultimately, we are accruing the same judgment that Paul extends to Corinth on ourselves when we tolerate sin and when we don't do our responsibility. Now, as I went through this study, I, I hope you didn't think I'm pointing the finger at anybody. This is just one of those passages that I think are incredibly misinterpreted. And because they are, that's the kind of passage I like to come to to make sure that, that we keep coming back to the foundation, which is, what has God said? It all boils down to authority, as, as a brother once said. It comes down to, has God commanded it? What has God spoken? And when he has, who am I to change it? Who am I to say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It is God said it, and that settles it, period. It doesn't matter what I think about the matter. What matters is, am I going to do it or not? Am I going to obey or not? And there may be a Christian. Again, this was not a lesson to you know, point the finger at any one person. But this is a lesson that I think is pretty pervasive in application because it could be talking about me. Maybe I have been walking astray from the Lord. Maybe I have been walking in rebellion. Maybe it's not public. Maybe I've been able to get away with it. But the same level of judgment that was on this man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, don't think that it's not on me if I'm walking in rebellion against God, even if it's private, even if I have a pretty good facade and everyone believes it. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that God does not see that and that the judgment isn't coming. And so if that is you, utilize the relationships you have here. Don't walk in doubt any longer. Don't walk in the deeds of darkness. Be in fellowship with Christ once more. We have an advocate in heaven. You don't have to leave this building without full assurance that you will be there with him in heaven this very evening should you pass away. If you're not a Christian, all that is waiting is judgment. What Jesus says is he comes to this earth so that we can be saved, so that we can have eternal life in him. And you can't have that unless you do everything that he says. 
We kept, we kept talking about, are you willing to fulfill, obey God's commandments, even when they're difficult? If you are, you're ready to become a Christian. Are you ready to live that life? Are you ready to subject yourself to the king? Do you believe what, you, what Jesus has said? Are you willing to be faithful in what he has said? Confess of those sins. Confess that he is the son of the living God. Make a confession based on that faith. Repent of everything he says that you need to do away with and be baptized into newness of his life. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward. Let me be made known as we stand and as we sing.